Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause, and I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we're going to meet Claudia Day. She's a best-selling author, playwright, actor, and the co-designer of the women's clothing brand Horses Atelier. Her books have been listed as one of the most anticipated books by Entertainment Weekly, The Millions, Publishers Weekly, and BuzzFeed. Her latest novel is Daughter, a searing and hypnotic tour de force about a woman caught in her charismatic father's web who strives to make a life and art of her own. First, though, let's get to know award-winning country artist Jason McCoy. He's racked up multiple CCMA and CMA awards, along with a gold album and a CMA Global Artist Award. As the creator and frontman of the best-selling band in Canadian country music history, that's the Road Hammers, Jason embarked on a journey through the country rock genre and guided the band to unprecedented success throughout Canada and the United States. Along the way, the band earned a Canadian Platinum Certified Album, secured three CCMA Band of the Year awards, and a Juno Award. Jason McCoy joins me today to talk about being inducted into the Canadian Country Music Hall of Fame and much more. Jason McCoy joined me via Zoom. Like she's good for me. Congratulations on uh, being inducted into the Canadian Country Music Hall of Fame. Oh, thank you so much. What a what a big surprise. What an honor. Well, it's interesting because you have loved country music from what I can gather since you lived in Camrose, Alberta when you were very young. Your family, it seems like they moved around a lot. And then when you were around five, you moved there. And I love this quote. For some reason, as a little kid, I had some sort of connection with these guys who were singing about these depressing things. <laughs> that was well, your introduction yeah. to country music. Well, you know, I, I, that sounds bad. I actually I had a very happy childhood. I've got a very happy life. But it's it's really something when I was young, my sister, my one sister listened to Donny Osmond, Puppy Love, mm -hmm. and the other one listened to Barry Manilow. And, and my dad, as a lot of young guys do, they whatever their dad says is gospel, right? Mm -hmm. So he said, Johnny Cash, George Jones, Merle Haggard, that's where it's at. So I started listening to that in the truck with them going out to the, you know, wherever we were working. And um, that just got in my bones. But then I'd fall asleep to those cassettes at night and listen to the radio. And for some reason, those lonesome haunting sounds of George Jones just, just poured right deep into me. And I don't know why, but it was like, I felt sorry for these guys. I was like, oh, these poor guys. And then, you know, cause what does a six year old know about, you know, heartache and loss and all this stuff. Drinking but, too uh, much, yeah. Yeah, but you know, but I, I, it stuck with me. For some reason, that lonesome feeling of country music and, and the stories, they just painted little audio pictures. 
Well, I think it's the storytelling. And that's what drew me into country music. I was not a country fan until I got my first radio job. And I used to have to do weekends and play country music. And I didn't really know that much about country music. So I just started playing the people that I knew. Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash. I, I, I would dig down. And then they would lead to Waylon Jennings. And that would lead to George Jones. And then, you know, on and on. And it was the storytelling. It was these authentic songs that sounded like they came out of real life experience and for me that meant a great deal yeah and you know what's odd is like you know being a young guy loving that I, I spent the first half of my career trying to pretend I was that or try to try to write <laughs> songs you know and then eventually right. you get to the point where you've lived a bit and you got a few miles in the rear view and you get to actually write about your own experiences but it's about storytelling you're right and no matter the genre that's that's the key You've been playing for this five years old is when you got sort of hooked on country music. But what made you pick up a guitar? What made you pick up, uh, you know, and, and sing? What made you do all that stuff? You say you didn't have a voice for rock and roll. So no. you 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 went uh, the, the country route. But tell me a little bit about, you know, what made you want to be a performer? Uh, my dad had a, a acoustic. He played at you know family events. Just a couple of him and his brother. They play a few songs. Always half a song, right? Because they never knew the second verse. Yeah, yeah. So uh, and then I I played played the guitar. I just grabbed it and tried a little bit here and there. And then um, you know I eventually talked my dad into buying me a new set of strings for this old guitar. <laughs> and, um, I learned a few songs. Next thing you know, I was about sixteen, and there was an ad in the local paper looking for a guitar player, singer for local legions and things. So I went and joined that band three quarter country was the name of the band and um i was hooked that was it my weekend part-time job in high school was playing on the weekends and you'd get paid cash to sing country music i was like are you kidding me uh and then i saw another ad in a paper when i was about 18 band needed a uh, guitar player to travel and i went down and auditioned in toronto that saturday afternoon and on monday i was in uh, on my way to calgary and that was it you're listening to jason mccoy on the richard Krause show this month he'll be inducted into the canadian country music hall of fame tell me a little bit about being on the road so you've been doing it forever now uh tell me about being on the road and and you know it seems glamorous it seems like it could be a lot of fun but it takes a toll i guess uh, it does now that I've got a son, 14, daughter, 17, and you mm. just, uh, you know, you want to be home. And um, yeah. it's funny, you work your whole life so that you can be busy and out there <laughs> and playing. And then to get there, you're like, I want to be home. Um, but it's it's a good life in that, uh, you know, we, we play uh, just enough, uh, just as much as we want to right now, yeah. and uh, which is great. But being on the road gives you a um, gives you a bunch of second homes all around the world. Mm. So. So it feels like I can go to Regina. It's like, oh, there's that coffee shop I always go to, or you go to, you know, anywhere. You know, it's just it's nice to have those little places and familiar faces around the globe that you can feel. You don't feel as lonely when you're on the road now because you've been there before. I'm a road hammer, a wonderful steel gear jammer, a rig jockey, highway slammer. I'm just doing what I gotta do. I'm a is it easy to write and and create music on the road or is that something that has to happen when you're at home and feeling comfortable and you've got more time it was before netflix now i think you know i'm too busy watching movies man uh you know it's uh it's great to get ideas on the road um 
and especially with everybody else when you're cruising along and you, you're just cutting up and being silly and that's mm. when the great ideas come when you're most relaxed right yeah and then i find that with songwriting for me just my way is uh coming up with ideas and then when i get home shutting everything off and you have to work on it like it's it's, a, it's you know you get the idea for the cabinet you're going to build and then you got to go back to your shop and take time and do it right and there's a couple of names here or a few names here uh that you've mentioned over and over in my reading for you and i'm just going to throw them out here and get your uh, initial reaction to each of them roger miller is the first one what is it about him that makes him great uh frantic and and unpredictable oh uh johnny cash i mean come on uh just he's deep well still waters and glenn campbell oh he's the ferrari of all all the uh sub trades of music He's just, you know, he looked like an action figure. He <laughs> sang like an angel and played like a fiend. I mean, he played on all that Beach Boy stuff, the Wrecking yeah. Crew. He was just, you know, he's, he's, yeah, he's the Ferrari. He's, he's what you shoot for. I think that he may be underrated. For as famous as he was, I grew up watching his variety specials on television and Rhinestone Cowboy. I knew all movies. the songs. Yeah, and movies did all that stuff. But there's, I, I don't think people realize what a gifted guitar player he was. So much session work, as you mentioned, worked with the Wrecking Crew, played on the Beach Boys albums, did all that sort of thing. But man, that guy could play. Well, yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing about it was, uh, like, he was so fluid in his playing. Mm -hmm. He was such an under underrated, maybe. Yeah, but under celebrated, definitely. Um, yeah. Like, here's a guy who, you know, like, you just read through all the accolades, movie star, TV star, uh, producer, guitar player. And uh, other than, you know, a, a brief stint with the worst of all drugs, <laughs> he yeah. uh, was a super nice guy. Yeah. Uh, so I knew a lot of people living in Nashville who uh, worked in and around him and they all said the same thing. Like he just, he didn't have an ego at all really. And uh, we got to play with him up in uh, Grand Prairie, Alberta one time. Wow. And, and I was just going on and on about different things that I'd seen over the years, just like yourself growing up and and uh, talking about guitars. And yeah. he was more interested in talking about pickups and guitars than, than he didn't <laughs> care about anything else. He's a guitar player and you're right. That I think if you sat him down and said, who are you of all these things? He'd probably say I'm a guitar player. Right. If I asked you that question, what would you say? I am a uh, lawn care maintenance expert at my farm. <laughs> <laughs> I, what, am, what do I do? I'm, I'm an entertainer. That's mm. what I think the biggest, to me, I always respected entertainers. I saw, well, I've seen so many, like the comedies of the world to whatever. I've seen all the big rock shows and all those things. But I've seen guys like like Glenn Campbell come out with just a guitar and a mic and entertain thousands of people. And, you know, I don't know if I, I'm that guy, but I, I know that I can entertain with a guitar and a rubber band. And a, like, it doesn't matter where I am or what setting. I've graduated to the point of being an entertainer. And that's 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 always been my goal. I didn't really know it. But but finally getting to that point, that's what I loved. Just pre-pandemic, I was in New York and I went to a, a tiny little place called the City Winery. And I saw Chris Christopherson play and uh, I had seen him years and years before that show, for some reason, didn't embed itself in my memory, particularly. But this show, he's in his 80s. His voice is wizened and, and just sounds like it it uh has in every time he opens his mouth you hear the experience you hear the authenticity that comes out of that and yeah. it is one of the top three greatest shows i've ever seen i I, I couldn't believe it 
Yeah, you got you got a front row seat to when that that magic you know happens. Yeah. It's interesting music. You know, you, we can go to these big stadium shows and big lights and pyro and all that stuff. And then there's always those things like we couldn't believe it. There was a songwriter thing and so and so singing. It was just the moon was right. Yeah. yeah, that's and that's where. And the other thing people need to remember: Chris Christopherson or Joe Blow at the campfire. That's music. The rest is business. There's a music and business. Music is the thing that should be the first and foremost. And when we hear those moments, we realize, well, there's so many business people around because <laughs> everybody wants to capture that and monetize it. But Glenn Campbell, hey, I'm a guitar player. Chris Christopherson, I'm a songwriter, storyteller. They know their thing and they did it so great that everything else built out from that. Mm-hmm. And took chances. I mean, I don't know if the story is true, but Chris Christopherson apparently uh like landed a helicopter on on uh willie nelson no johnny cash's uh you know farm and said i got a song and now that i've got your attention i've got a song i want you to to record which is amazing i, yeah, I even if it's true. not true even if it's not true always print the legend yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. love it so you you have moved, uh, you're still playing, obviously, but you have moved into broadcasting as well. What is it about broadcasting that appeals to you? Uh, they have dental. <laughs> uh, you know, no, I, when we were on the road, I always loved going in and doing interviews with radio stations. That's yep. all great. Uh, but I'd always stay behind and I always be the guy asking the DJ, okay, so how's the music come in? What do you do here? What's the board like? And what's it mean when you're using all these terms and stuff? And I genuinely had an interest because when I was a kid in Camrose, we had a radio on top of the fridge and we listened to country music and the hog and feed report on the hour. And um, it was just an amazing thing. And it's still one of the last magical things because that radio, whether it be satellite, whether it be radio on your, in your house, what in your car, it floats through the air. You know what I mean? It's a thing. And Oz is still behind the curtain. There's something magical about hearing those songs for the first time on the radio. And um, I just fell in love with it. And it's just part of a full circle of thing of performing, writing songs and, and all this stuff, recording, and then, and then getting to be part of the, when people call up, you know, it's the same as when people clap at a show. You hear somebody call up and say, hey, I heard, they don't have to say, oh, the thing you just said was funny. They yeah. can just call up. I was talking the other day about, I have wasps at the house. What am I supposed to do to get rid of the wasps? <laughs> well, you get about, you know, 10, 15 people calling with different home remedies of how to get rid of wasps. Well, that's amazing. That's an interactive show, and I love it. You're listening to Jason McCoy on The Richard Krause Show. This month, he'll be inducted into the Canadian Country Music Hall of Fame. I love a radio because of how intimate it is. It's just your voice. You have to tell stories. You have to keep people engaged with just the words. I've spent 25 years on television and, you know, if an interview isn't that uh, interesting, you throw a bunch of uh, clips on top of it. You know, you you can tart it up to make it interesting if you have to. But radio, it doesn't work like that. Radio is all about the stories, about the words. And uh, I just love the, the intimacy of it all. Well, people, you know, uh, may not know this, but we've known each other for a number of years. Yeah. And that's where I first met you was in TV. Yeah. And, you know, for those uh, who don't know you personally, like you're the same person on radio as you are off radio. And so I think that that makes like you're you're a comfortable storyteller because you like stories and you like what you do and you're passionate about it. And then you're you just say, hey, check this out. And then people oh, yeah. will listen to that because it's not a show you're generally interested genuinely interested in what what it is and i think that's when you find that in radio it's it's great that's when the conversation starts and the fans or the listeners are 
are like, hey, I, I know a thing or two about that. I'm going to call in and contribute. And that's great because that's what we're here on this planet to do is to talk. And to talk and to communicate. Absolutely. So you're being inducted into the Canadian Country Music Hall of Fame. Uh, tell me what that means to you. You know, it 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 means a great deal because it seems like only yesterday, and you hear all the uh, old guys talk like yeah. this. Yeah, seems yeah. like only yesterday going to the CCMAs for the first time and getting that ticket to the gala dinner and seeing so-and-so inducted in the Hall yeah. of Fame and, and uh, you know, thinking, boy, yeah, I – those guys did a mountain of work to get into that call of fame and all this kind of stuff. And then they called me and I was like, well, I haven't really done anything yet. <laughs> you know, I've made up songs that rhyme and, and uh, that's fun. Uh, we got the road hammers and all that yeah. stuff. Um, you know, I'm 53 and I honestly, and I, you know, I heard people say this when they got inducted too. It's like, Oh, I feel like I just beginning, you know, mm -hmm. and I really do. So, a lot of people would view this as an ending or a, a closing of a chapter or something like that. I look at it as a flag in the sand on, on a journey. And it's amazing because, first of all, it's pretty humbling, right? Because, yeah. you know, somebody in a room somewhere said, well, how about Jason McCoy? Won't we, you know, what about, I want to nominate him. Yeah. You're like, really? That's amazing to begin with. Uh, and it's even more humbling when you think of people would actually allow you put your records on the radio and then somebody would buy it and then somebody might sing it at a local bar in their band so those sorts of things are are the same kind of award as the as a hall of fame to me they're all about the same they're all i guess validation that you're doing something right um and just pretty humbling you know pretty pretty big deal i'm just a kid from menacing who liked to try and be johnny cash when he was a kid <laughs> well you must have it where people come up to you and say, oh, we played one of your songs at my father's funeral. We got married to one of your songs. We, you know, the, these songs that weave themselves into the fabric of people's lives, uh, it's a big deal. Sting told me once, he said, that is the most rewarding part of being a songwriter, is when people come up and talk yeah. to you about that. Sure it is, yeah. we Just, just this weekend passed, we did a show, it was a private show in this distillery. It was really cool out in Alberta. It's called Rig Hand Distillery. I'm going to give them a plug because they're great guys, <laughs> Jeff and the crew out there. Um, so anyway, it was a private show, small, small, few hundred people. And this couple were going to do their wedding rehearsal there. They were getting married on the Saturday. We were in there the Friday. And so they had to go to the downstairs to move their rehearsal down there. So they got up and I said, well, for your first dance, I'm going to play uh, one of my songs called And I Love You. I said, it's kind of the most fitting wedding first dance song I have. It said, I know you already got your first dance pick, but... <laughs> Whatever, this will be our little moment. Yeah. And the next day they posted a video online. They said, oh, we changed our song and now we're using yours, your song, And I Love You. And I was just like that, you're right. Yeah. Sting's right. That is probably the highest honor because it's like you're part of the soundtrack of your life because their life, because my wife and I, you know, our first dance at our wedding was Don Williams. And uh, that song will always be in our life. Yeah. So it's it's pretty big honor. That's very cool. Well, congratulations on the Canadian uh, Country Music Hall of Fame and all the success. And, you know, I hope you get to chat again soon. Oh, Richard, thank you very much. I appreciate all you do. And thanks for taking the time. What a great guy. Could have talked to him for hours. That was Jason McCoy, Canadian Country Music Hall of Famer on The Richard Krause Show. In this segment, we'll meet Claudia Day. Among other things, she is a playwright, 
actor, and co-designer of the women's clothing brand Horses Atelier. Today, we're here to talk about her work as a best-selling author. Her books have won awards and been placed on Entertainment Weekly's Most Anticipated list. Her latest novel is Daughter, a detailed account of family relations when the father is a famous writer. The reviews are stellar. Musician Leslie Feist called the book original, seductive, and so alive. Let's meet Claudia Day, who joined me via Zoom. Now, you call Daughter your pandemic novel. What does that mean to you? I really wrote it in isolation throughout the pandemic when we all had a new kind of despair, a new fear. And I found as a writer, I had a new impatience Ooh. and needed to find a new way to work. I couldn't repeat writing fiction the way that I had previously. And so essentially over time, I'd been working and working and the feeling was like being miscast in a play. And once I struck first the image of a father and daughter in a restaurant and second, the opening line of the book, I knew I had the book and I knew what I needed to do, which was to write it in a very direct, very unadorned way. And I think that that impatience that I felt just really translates through the novel because it's written in such an urgent, fast way. And how does that differ from how you would have written uh, the other books? Well, I think my previous books, Heartbreaker and Stunt, were much more language-led. They were much more poetic. And this book, you know, of course, I'm still interested in beauty and in a perfect line. All of that remains true. But I was much more conscious of just getting to the desired scenes and writing essentially out of control states in a really controlled, lucid way. So I would plant something on every single page to make sure that the reader would turn it. It was like little cliffhangers all the way through. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, I have a quote here from you, and it touches on what you were just talking about, but I wanted to get your response to it. You say, I'd been writing uh, in a searching way for a couple of years, and nothing felt right. I think we've sort of discussed that. In fact, it all felt wrong, like I had been miscast. Do you think that uh, the novelist character in your book, who was in search for inspiration, was inspired by your search for something new, something different? Oh, that's so interesting. Let's say yes. <laughs> <laughs> was interesting when writers write about writers. Because I often wonder uh, if it is self-reflective or if it is uh, an idea of just what another's writer's life might be like. Because if for, there are as many different kinds of ways of writing as there are writers out there. Uh, and I'm often interested when I see writers uh, sketching out and writing down what it's like to be a writer, if it reflects on their own experience or not. Yeah, it's it's such a great comment. And this is the, you know, the father character, Paul, who's famous for one great novel, and then of course hits a kind of writer block, despite his immense fame and popularity and undeniable charisma. And for him, I really pulled from, you know, the the myths of Leonard Cohen and, you know, these giant kind of male figures who've really dominated the culture. And then his daughter, of course, is Mona who's struggling in her own way 
to make art and then finally it clicks into place and so while the novels of father daughter novel is also really about a young woman artist who's coming into her own power so of course i've experienced both of those states i know what it is to write in a way that you think this is bad this isn't right this isn't what i want to be working on and then i know what it is too to strike the right thing and then to I don't know. I, I read this Annie or no quote that talked about it as transmissions, like where you just write, I wrote the whole first draft in two months and that's essentially intact in the novel. And then I've built and drafted around it. You're listening to Claudia Day on the Richard Krause show. Her new book daughter is available wherever you buy fine books. You say you knew where it was going to go from the first line. Do you do treatments? Do you figure it out uh, beforehand? No, you're making that face that says no. Uh -oh. <laughs> no, I'm really I'm really one of those delinquent writers uh, that I just I went in with intentions and I went in with this kind of list of constraints where I was like, I don't want to spend my time describing a room or a sky or a pair of boots. I want this to be a novel of interiors. I don't want to mythologize people. Um, and so with those constraints, I, I, I worked and worked and worked, but I was totally open to disruption. So for example, with this book, we keep kind of migrating between points of view. Um, what my friend calls like the ghostly writing where I get into the characters minds, you know, and that was a total surprise for me. And I just went with it. Douglas Copen told me once that it's his characters that tell him what they want to do. He said it's almost like, you know, the devil and angel that sit on uh, your shoulders and they whisper into your ears and tell you which way to go. Is it like that for you? I love that. That's exactly what it's like. A lot of whispering. <laughs> A lot of devils and angels. And angels, too. You talk about uh, describing the room and the shoes and the whole thing. I have written, I don't know, thousands of profiles of people. And I always find when I go back and revisit them, uh, that the ones, the stories that have all the description about the hotel room that we're in when we did the interview and that sort of thing, generally speaking, mean that the subject didn't have much to say. And I still had to <laughs> figure out a thousand words. <laughs> <laughs> and get something down. And so yeah. it becomes all description. Yeah, no, I love that. And it means that somehow you weren't able to get to the meat of the mm -hmm. conversation. And I wanted this novel to be like all meat. On CBC Books, you mm -hmm. said that you think of Daughter as uh, succession sometimes. So tell me a little bit about that. It's, a, it's about intergenerational struggle in some ways. It's about uh, two artists uh, trying to figure out their, their path forward. Now, succession isn't about artists, but it's certainly about fathers and, and children. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's I think it's a useful comparison in the sense that the the empire at stake is not media, it's art. Mm -hmm. And in Daughter, we have the powerful patriarch. We have Paul, who everyone is climbing over climbing over each other to get Paul's attention, to get to win his love. Um, so we have Paul, we have the dueling, like viciously competitive siblings, and we have the cold, uh, wounded uh, stepmother figure as well. Um, and it's really, in its own way, a tragic love story 
you know, like however broken the expressions are of love, that is what suffuses it and what motors it. And I have to say too, like succession in the end, you know, families organize themselves around these powerful patriarchs, these famous men, but it's the women who really, who orbit him, who, who, who motor the story. So I thought so much of that image at Logan Roy's funeral, where the women sit together in the pew and Shiv has that line, he couldn't fit a whole woman in his head. And that really reflects like the heart of daughter. Many of your books have been uh, about family dynamic. Is mm -hmm. it just uh, something that is a subject that is endlessly fascinating to you? Are you trying to figure things out? Uh, and by putting it down on the page, what what is it for you? Yeah, I always write from a place of you know, curiosity or unease or trying to just like settle a debate within myself. And for me, it's like with this book, I wanted to write like the hottest emotions. I wanted real emotional immediacy. And for me, that really comes through love, the absence of love, love as manipulation, attentions mistaken for love. And so, yes, certainly family can hold all of that dimensional love. You talk about uh, leaving a, a little cliffhanger almost at the end of, of every page. I'm always curious about uh, a writer's process in the sense of when they sit down to write, um, I've heard so many different things. Elmore Leonard would write in longhand and then at 12 noon, at 12 noon sharp, even if he was in the middle of a sentence, put the pen down and go have lunch and then come back and pick it up again. And I asked him about that. And he said, well, if you stop in the middle of a sentence, you have a, an easier time coming in because all you have to do to start again is complete that sentence. And then it pushes you forward. Do you um, have any little tricks like that that you use? I would say I'm like similarly monkish for sure in terms of my like schedule and discipline, or I certainly try to be. Um, so I will, you know, I have two young children. My husband's a musician. We all live in this house together. It's like noisy and alive and beautiful. I leave to write. So I'll, you know, like uh, go to coffee shops and things or no, like a friend's empty apartment and I'll stay there for a couple of weeks, sort of like a, like a hotel room. Yeah. And I will go, I will turn off my phone. I will not go on the internet. And I wake up in the morning and I go straight to my desk and I work. And I find that, you know, I work mostly on my laptop, but I do a ton of longhand writing. I've collected probably, I don't know, 15 notebooks for this novel alone. And yeah, I just find that if I'm working in these really compressed, intense chunks of time, the writing's just stronger. I'm so voice driven. I'm so sonic the way that I write that it's like I need to stay inside a certain state and can't let it be interrupted. Do you think that the approach that you took on daughter will be the one that you use moving forward in the sense no. of just, just language driven rather than uh, anything else? Well, I think, yeah, the approach Put it this way, I'm at a point in my career, I've written three plays, I've now written three novels. I know when I'm faking. 
And I know when it's right. I know when it's the thing that I want to spend two years of my life obsessing over. And so certainly like all that kind of mechanical process-based work is super important and I'll carry it forward. Um, but in the end, it's like I let a novel live when I know it's the right novel to work on. And it's like, again, it's like a sonic test in my head where I'm like, no, this is like a synthetic book. It's false. Whereas, oh, no, this is where you need to place all your time and obsession. Do you have a hard time letting them go? You say you are obsessed with them. Do you have a hard time letting them go? It, it's the characters become so real. So yes, absolutely. They're so difficult to leave. Like I definitely went into a deep blue period when the work was done because I am a very obsessive kind of worker. You don't want to change a lot because you want to preserve its aliveness and its precision. So you never want to meddle, but it's like I would just sit with it and read it over and over and over again. Like I could not get enough of it, you know? And then, yeah, over time, it changes. You start to become outward facing and you're talking about it. And that is creative in itself, too. And then eventually your mind opens up to the next thing, thankfully. But it does take time. It can be difficult. I once changed uh -huh. uh, one of my books up until, you know, the, the last possible second. And then again, I changed a paragraph uh, in between the first and second printing. Oh, that's so interesting. I couldn't let it go. I could not let it go. And it was going to haunt me forever if I didn't make that one change. You're listening to Claudia Day on The Richard Krause Show. Her new book, Daughter, is available wherever you buy fine books. What kind of change did you make? It was not substantial, but it was to me. Uh, and it was it, it it didn't change the meaning of anything that was in the book. It was just simply an, a very awkward sentence that I had labored over, that I had worked at for ages, and it just never felt right to me. But um, it, it was it was finished. It just it, it it felt like okay, it's time to just let this go. One sentence in the entire book, hundred thousand words, probably twenty words out of that, and I couldn't let it go. And I changed it between the the first. It dawned on me uh, yeah. how to change it, and I changed it in the between the first and second printing. Yeah, yeah. I don't recommend it. Nobody no, likes it when no, you do. I that. mean, that's <laughs> but that's like such a true writer move to be like so. You know. So much time has passed and you're still haunted by this one moment that doesn't feel quite perfect or quite of the thing. Are you working on something right now? No, I'm no. not. <laughs> no, I'm I'm like out in the world again. Like I, when I say monkish, I mean like truly very mm -hmm. monkish. Like I really socially withdraw, which of course the pandemic was, was you know, the perfect setting for uh, an interior life. Uh, but no, now I'm like, I'm seeing art and seeing music and seeing friends and enjoying this part of it, enjoying talking about the book so much. I'm having such incredible conversations with people and I'll give myself time. I know it takes me like about two years of writing, like kind of badly, like searchingly. And right. then I hit on something and then I give myself two years to work on it. So I'm anticipating a similar life cycle for the next book. 
And you do a lot of different things. You design clothes. Uh, you have a, a clothing company. You write plays. Uh, you have two kids. I've got a, a quote here from you uh, about the artist mother's bar graph. And it is, you know, it, it's very much just about finding time. You, you talk about the rapid dissolution of time. And so I guess that always must be on your mind when you do multiple things in multiple disciplines. Yeah. Yeah. They feed each other. You know, like they really combine in a way that works for me. And certainly that's true of having a family. You know, it just, it creates an urgency in me. And I think it makes me more of a risk taker as an artist too. And, you know, my kids are a little bit older now and I see their autonomy and my autonomy. And so it's, it's changing a bit, but I like that pressure because I do think that it makes for truer work or at least for me I like that time pressure I need it it gives me structure you know and it it it's like every moment has to have some meaning to it well congratulations on it and congratulations on the cover it's super cool thank you so much yeah I love the cover so much too she's a genius June Park yeah. is the artist and um yeah, she just, she really went in deep. It's a very eye-catching. This was sitting on my desk this morning, and my wife came in and said, what is that? And oh, it, yeah, and uh, so um, I'm handing it. It goes from my desk to uh, her bedside table now. Oh, I love that. <laughs> that's so perfect. Thank you. Based on the cover alone for her. So that's, that's, a, that's a good that's thing. Amazing. I love it. <laughs> well, thank you, Claudia. Nice to meet you. Oh, it's so nice to meet you as well. Thank you so much for having me. That was Claudia Day on The Richard Krause Show. Her new book, Daughter, is available wherever you buy fine books. A big thanks to Claudia. A big thanks to Jason McCoy. And congratulations on being inducted into the Canadian Country Music Hall of Fame. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay safe, stay weird. And we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>